Well, I want to thank God for the privilege and the opportunity he's given me to share his word with you. And I really want to thank Pastor Robert Case for his kind and gracious invitation. It's wonderful to be here, and I look forward to all that God has in store for us as we look into his word. Uh, Before we get into his word, I'm just going to sing a very familiar old hymn. You see, Fanny Crosby had been asked to preach at a prison, and she spoke about the love and the grace and the mercy of God. And then she sat down. As she was sitting down, she heard one of the prisoners in the back whisper, Dear God, dear God, please don't pass me by. She went home that night and wrote this marvelous hymn. Please sing along with me if you know the words. me not, O gentle Savior, hear my humble cry, while on others thou art Savior, I come 
See, there was a fundraiser at a local church and the adults and the high schoolers decided to put out two tables of appetizers for those who'd be arriving early and so the adults put out a table with a bowl of apples and their signboard said please take only one apple remember god is watching <laughs> just a few feet away the high schoolers put out a table with a bowl of candy and their signboard said Take as much candy as you want. God is watching the apples. <laughs> you see, as humorous as it may seem, it brings us to a deep consciousness of a deeper question. And that question is this. Is there a God and is he really watching? Is there a God and is he really watching? Is there a God who is watching over my life, over my affairs, my situations, my circumstances? Is there a God? And is he really watching? Well, the Bible says, the scripture says, that there is not only a God, he's not only watching over you and me, but he's a father. He's a God who's interested in our lives, who's involved in our lives, who's intimately, intimately conversant with our lives. A God who is with us in every dimension, avenue, and area of life. A God who calls us to live a life that is pleasing to him. A God who says, live a life centered on me. Live a Christ-centered life, a Christocentric life. What does that life look like? What are some of the values and the virtues of that life? What should be exemplified in a life that is centered on him? We're going to look at that in just a few moments as we look at the Word of God. Before we do that, would you close your eyes for a moment as we look to Him in prayer. Oh Lord, we thank you for this beautiful morning. We thank you for this church. We thank you for this place. I thank you for each and every person here and each and every person watching through YouTube. Lord, we thank you for your Word. We thank you for your Son. We thank you for the cross. We thank you for the empty grave. We thank you because you're not just a God of history, you're a God of a present reality. And what you did 2,000 years ago, you're able to do this morning. Alive and well, seated on the throne. And so we worship you, we adore you, and we thank you. Be with us now as we meditate on your word. Help us to understand the kind of God you are and the kind of people that you want us to be. 
In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Dr. Radhakrishnan, he was a prominent Hindu philosopher, one-time president of India, the land of my birth. He was not a Christian, he was a Hindu. He said something very perceptive about Jesus. This was a Hindu. He said between John the Baptist and Jesus, there is a difference. Between John the Baptist and Jesus, there is a difference. John, he said, was a reformer. What do reformers do? Reformers take the value systems that are already resident within a given culture or society, and they call its people to reorient their priorities. But, said Dr. Radhakrishnan, Jesus was a regenerator. John was a reformer, but Jesus, Jesus was a regenerator. What do regenerators do? Regenerators bring in values that a society or culture in and of itself is incapable of producing, and they call its people to a new dimension of living. They call its people to a new dimension of living. If we as the church, if we as a community of the redeemed are truly a called people, then we need to live out the virtues and the values of what E. Stanley Jones, the great missionary to India, called the unshakable kingdom and the unchanging person. The unshakable kingdom and the unchanging person. How will the liberating power of the gospel change the lives of individuals, of families, of communities, of nations in our world today? If we truly are a called people, how should we then live? How can we live this life centered on him, this Christocentric life? Charles Spurgeon once said, settle the center and the circumference will fall in place. Settle the center, everything else in your life will fall in place. You know what the problem of the Christian journey is? In our spiritual journey is? In our churches, you know what the problem is? An unsettled center. Constantly moving back and forth. Constantly shifting from the center. Keep him at the center of your life. At the center of your community. At the center of this church and everything else will fall in place. Why do we always circle back to Christ? It's because the Bible itself is centered on him, is it not? The Old Testament is an anticipation of him. The New Testament is a fulfillment of him. Every word, every promise, and every prophecy points to him. Take Christ out of the manger, and all you have is another stable. Take Christ out of the cross, and all you have is another symbol. Take Christ out of Easter, and all you have is another Sunday. Take Christ out of Christianity, and all you have is another religion. He is the sum total and the substance of our faith, and we're called to be centered on him. Christocentric living. What does this look like? If you have your Bibles with you, please turn with me to the book of Acts. Acts chapter 3. Verses 1 through 10. Acts chapter 3, verses 1 through 10. Now Peter and John went up together into the temple at the hour of prayer, being the ninth hour. And a certain man lame from his mother's womb was carried, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple, which is called Beautiful, to ask alms of them that entered into the temple, who, seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, asked an alms. And Peter, fastening his eyes upon him with John, said, Look upon us. And he gave heed unto them, expecting to receive something of them. 
Then Peter said, Silver and gold have I none, but such as I have I give thee. In the name of Jesus of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And he took him by the right hand and lifted him up. And immediately his feet and ankle bones received strength. And he, leaping up, stood and walked and entered with them into the temple, walking and leaping and praising God. And all the people saw him walking and praising God. And they knew that it was he which sat for alms at the beautiful gate of the temple. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at that which had happened unto him. At that which had happened unto him. You see, when the Holy Spirit came upon the disciples in Acts chapter 2, they were in one place and in one accord. Peter addressed the Jews, and 3,000 souls were converted to the glory of God. Chapter 2 is a glorious chapter, is it not? Life was experienced like never before. People were praising God from morning till night, and all of the sensations and all of the experiences were anything but common. Uncommon sensations, uncommon experiences. But Acts chapter 3 begins with Peter and John walking in the common places where others were as they went up to the temple. My dear friend, there will be times of intense religious and spiritual experiences in the life of the Christian and in the life of the church, but the norm for the Christian and the norm for the church is in the common places of this world. The experience of the Pentecost these intense experiences need to be translated into something of missional value in the kingdom. As we go to these common places where people are living lives of quiet desperation. Of quiet desperation. And as those whose lives are centered on Christ, as those who live this Christocentric life, God wants to see three things from this particular portion of scripture converge and coalesce in our lives individually and communally as his church. And the first thing is this, a life that is centered on him is a life that embodies him, the embodiment of Christ. Look at Acts chapter 3 verse 1. It says, Peter and John went together. Beautiful phrase. They went together. There was a togetherness about them. There was a sense of unity, a sense of coming together. Do you know why the early church had the power that it had? It wasn't because they were in the right place. It wasn't because they had the right position. And it certainly wasn't because they had the right people. The early church had the power that it had because they had the right relationships. First and foremost with God himself and secondly with each other as they embodied Christ embodied his person, the essence of his character in their midst, in their togetherness with each other. That's why they had the power that they had. Acts chapter 2 says they were together and had all things, all things in common. People who saw them saw Christ at work in and through them. That's why they were called Christians, because they were so Christ-like. They reflected his glory and his splendor. And people said, we've got to call these people Christians. They're so like the master whom they follow. They're so Christ-like. They embody him. They reflect him. We can see Christ at work in and through them. And so they were called Christians. A togetherness. You see, Peter and John were very different men. Peter was young. He was brash. 
John was a dreamer. He was a poet. And they probably had their differences. They probably did not see eye to eye on every single issue, much like we don't today. We have our differences, don't we? But they knew that they were both sinners in need of a Savior, and they had found their answer in Christ as they embodied that love and that grace and that mercy in their relationship with each other. Do you know what the problem with the church today is? Instead of being loving to each other, instead of being gracious to each other, instead of praying for each other, standing with each other, forgiving each other, we sometimes end up comparing ourselves to each other. Is that not true? We compare ourselves to each other based on our relative moralities, forgetting that when compared against the very holiness of God, you and I completely fall short of his glory. Two brothers ravaged a particular village, and they did every dirty, rotten, stinking thing that you can think of, and the villagers absolutely hated both brothers. They were the most evil, wicked men you could have ever met. Suddenly, one of the brothers unexpectedly died, and the surviving brother went to the local church pastor and asked him to eulogize his dead brother. He looked at the pastor and said, I know that the church needs a lot of money. You've got a lot of things to fix. I'll give you a large sum of money. I want you to do the eulogy. With all the things that you'll be doing, there is one thing that you have to do. You have to call my brother a saint. The pastor really didn't want to do it because he knew the character of the brother who had died. But the church needed the money, so he agreed. So on the day of the funeral, the entire village had gathered out of curiosity. They wanted to know what the pastor was going to say and what he was going to do. So the pastor went through the usual rituals. Then he went and stood right in front of the body of the dead brother. And he said, pointing to the body, he said, the man you see lying in this box, he was a cheat. He was a scoundrel. He was a good for nothing. Nothing good ever came out of his life. He did every dirty, rotten, stinking thing that you can ever think of. But compared to his brother standing here, he was a saint. <laughs> Malcolm Muggridge, the great English journalist, once said that sin is the most empirically verifiable of all facts. C.S. Lewis said, sin makes us less than we were meant to be. The Bible says, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And my dear brothers and my dear sisters, God is looking to you and God is looking to me to extend that same love and grace and mercy and forgiveness that we have received from him to others in all of our relationships as we embody him. As we embody him. You see, God wants to make us instruments of his peace in this desperate and dying world. As St. Francis of Assisi once prayed, Lord, make me an instrument of your peace. Where there is hatred, let me sow love. Where there is injury, pardon. Where there is despair, hope. Where there is darkness, light. Let me be an instrument of your peace in this world. You see, there are many ways in which we can embody Christ. For lack of time, let me just mention one of the ways. It's a very simple way. It's by being forgiving to each other. It's by being forgiving to each other. But sometimes it's the most difficult thing to do, especially when you're out there on the freeways. <laughs> you see, words are spoken, actions are undertaken, intentions are made known, and immediately that bitterness begins to well up in your heart and mind. Is that not true? 
It wells up in your heart and mind. The need to get even with that person or that family or that group, to let them know how you felt and how you were violated. But my dear brothers and my dear sisters, God is looking into the depths of your heart this morning, and he's looking into the depths of my heart, and he's saying to us, if you're truly saturated by the love and the grace and the mercy and the compassion of my son, if you've truly experienced his forgiveness in your life, then let it overflow from your life and touch the life of another. Embody me. Embody me. Let people see my life at work in you. Be a reflector of who I am. Represent me on this planet. There is a purpose and a plan for your life. Center your life around me. Two friends were walking in the desert, and at some point they got into an argument, and one of the friends slapped the other on the face. The one who got slapped was very sad, and he wrote in sand, Today, my best friend slapped me. They kept walking till they came to an oasis, and they both decided to go in for a swim. The one who'd been slapped began drowning, and his friend saved him. Once he had recovered from near drowning, he wrote on a slab of stone, Today, my best friend saved me. And the friend who had both slapped him and saved him asked him why he had written in sand when he'd been slapped, and why he had engraved it on stone when he'd been saved. And his other friend replied, because when somebody hurts us, we should write it in sand where the winds of God's forgiveness may erase it away, may erase it away. But when someone does something good in our lives and is a blessing to us, we should engrave it in stone where it may endure forever. God wants you to write your hurts in sand and to engrave your blessings in stone as you live out this life he has called you to live. This new dimension of living... There's a new dimension of living, embodying him, embodying the nature and the essence of who Christ is. Look at that verse, Acts chapter 3, verses 1 through 10. Peter looks at the lame beggar and he cries out, look upon us. Look upon us. He doesn't say, look upon me. It's very important. He says, look upon us. He gave full recognition to John and validated his ministry as well. My dear friends, in a community that embodies Christ, there are no big eyes or little U's. We are brothers and sisters in Christ who come together to celebrate each other. To celebrate each other. Church is not a place where we tolerate each other. It's a place where we celebrate each other. In spite of the differences. In spite of the differences. I look to you and say, you're my brother, you're my sister in Christ. Let's have this togetherness in our relationship as we embody the master, as we embody the savior. I wonder this morning if we can look at a desperate and dying world out there and say to them along with Peter, look upon us. Can Calvary Chapel Eastside look at the nation, look at the world out there and say, look upon us. That's the challenge, my dear brothers and my dear sisters. That's the challenge. Look upon us. We're a community. We're a fellowship. We're a gathering where the gospel is not merely heard, but where the gospel is seen. Look upon us. We're a church where the gospel is not merely proclaimed, but where the gospel is embodied. Look upon us. Look upon us. The world out there is constantly asking, constantly asking, why does a community that speaks so much about love and grace and mercy and forgiveness embody so little of it. 
Why is there a contradiction between what I believe and how I live? Gypsy Smith once said, there are actually five Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and the Christian, and many will never read the first four. My dear friends, what do people see when they read your life? When they look at this community, when they look at this church, do they see the embodiment of Christ? The embodiment of Christ. Peter and John went together. We have the embodiment of Christ. Secondly, a life centered on him is empowered by him. The empowerment in Christ. The empowerment in Christ. Look at that portion of scripture, Acts chapter 3, verses 1 through 10. The lame beggar sits at that gate day after day. On this particular occasion, he is being brought to the gates, and on seeing Peter and John, he cries out to them. And the Bible says that when Peter heard his cries, he fastened his eyes upon him. I love that term in the King James Version. It was not just a casual glance. Peter fastened. It was intentional. Intentional and intense. Peter fastened his eyes upon him. The lame beggar looks at them, expecting to receive some money from them. And then Peter begins to speak. And he speaks some of the most beautiful words recorded in Scripture. He looks at the lame beggar and he says, Silver and gold I have none, but such as I have I give thee. In the name of Jesus of Nazareth, rise up and walk. He did not give the lame beggar what he wanted. He gave the lame beggar what he desperately needed. What he desperately needed. You see, I can almost feel what the lame beggar must have felt at that moment. Peter, don't you see me? Don't you see my suffering? Don't you see my burdens? Don't you see my despair? Despair for me is not just a moment, Peter. It's a lifetime. Are you blind? What are you talking about, Peter? Don't you understand what I'm going through? The agony, the distress, the pain, the sorrow? Why don't you just pass on by, Peter? If you didn't have any money, don't bother me. Pass on by. Leave me alone. Let me collect that money from someone else. Many of us have known people who have been suffering for a long time, haven't we? It may be a sickness, but not necessarily. It may be something financial. It may be a loss of purpose. It may be a sense of desperation, a sense of despair, depression, things that have been lingering on for a long time. Maybe you're here this morning, and you are wondering when all of this is going to change in your life. You've been suffering for a long time. Some particular issue in your life. You've tried everything possible to rectify the situation and nothing has happened. And you're left wondering in that state of despair. Does God see me in my situation? Does he know what I'm going through? My situations, my circumstances. Bertrand Russell, the famous atheist philosopher, in his essay of free man's worship writes the following. All the labors of the ages, all the devotion, all the inspiration, all the noonday brightness of human genius are destined to extinction in the vast death of the solar system beneath the debris of a universe in ruins. Only within the scaffolding of these truths, only on the firm foundation of unyielding despair is a life built because it is ultimately without any hope. Ultimately without any hope. Constant, unyielding despair. Maybe those words resonate with you this morning. This man had been that way since birth. And here comes Peter talking about rising up and walking.
Let me ask you a candid question this morning. If you had been that lame beggar and Peter had spoken those words to you, what would have been your response? Sometimes we don't think about it. Put yourself in his place. What would have been your response? Well, the logical question to ask is, how can this be? I hear what you're saying, Peter, but how can this be? How can this happen in my life? Yes, I know the promises of God. I know he wants to bless me and lead me in the future, but I don't even see the possibility of any of this happening in my life. Maybe in someone else's life. How can it happen in my life? How can this be? There was someone in scripture who asked that question. Who was it? How can this be? Do you remember? Mary. When the angel of the Lord appeared before Mary and told her that she was going to be with child, Mary asked, how can this be? There have to be certain pre-existing conditions before I can, I can have a child. Those conditions are not there. How can this be? How can this be in my life? Do you remember the response of the angel of the Lord? The angel of the Lord said, nothing is impossible with God. Nothing is impossible with God. The angel of the Lord was essentially saying, Mary, as long as you live within a paradigm in which you are the frame of reference, what I've decreed into your life will not only seem improbable, but quite impossible. But when there is a paradigm shift and God becomes the frame of reference, he will redefine the possibilities and the impossibilities in your life. For in the economy of God, the possibilities always outweigh the impossibilities. For in him, by him, through him, and because of him, all things become possible for you. All things become possible for you. The maker of heaven and earth, the alpha and the omega, the eternal now is able to accomplish all that concerns you for nothing, absolutely nothing is impossible with God. In a similar way, Peter was essentially saying to the lame beggar, I come to you in the name that is above every name. A name that not only has life-giving power, but resurrection power. And when God invades your life and the spirit of his son flows through every crippled faculty of your body, you will not only be healed, but be made whole in the totality of who you are. For he's able to do more than you can ever ask or imagine. In the name of this Jesus of Nazareth, rise up and walk. In the name of this Jesus of Nazareth, rise up, rise up and walk. Pope Innocent IV is reputed to have shown St. Thomas Aquinas, one of the early church fathers, all the riches of Rome. All the riches of Rome. He said, look at everything. Everything that the church has accumulated over the centuries. And then the Pope said, the church can no longer say, silver and gold, I have none. <laughs> the church can no longer say, silver and gold, I have none. The wise Aquinas looked at the Pope and he said, that may be true, Holy Father, but neither is she in a condition to say, rise up and walk. My dear friends, our power is not religious. Our power is not political. Our power is not in the kinds of buildings that we build or in the kinds of programs that we run. As good as all these things may be, our power is only and absolutely in the name of Jesus. Only and absolutely in the name of Jesus. John Newton, the slave trader who was saved by the grace of God, said, 
How sweet the name of Jesus sounds in a believer's ears. It soothes his sorrows, heals his wounds, and drives away, drives away all his fears. William Lecky, the great historian who was not a believer, wrote in his book, The History of European Morals from Augustus to Charlemagne. This is what he wrote. The character of Jesus has not only the highest pattern of virtue, but the strongest incentive to its practice, and has exerted so deep an influence that it may be truly said that three short years of active life have done more to regenerate and to soften mankind than all the disquisitions of philosophers and the exhortations of moralists. Christ is not one among other things. He is not one among other gods. He is not one among other philosophies. He is not one among other options. He's a centerpiece of history and the hope of humanity. And there's power in his name. And there's power in his name. You know what the marvelous thing is? God has not changed. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. What he did 2,000 years ago, my dear friend, he is able to do in Bellevue, Washington, at Calvary Chapel Eastside this morning. He wants to empower you. He wants to empower our families. He wants to empower this church. He wants to empower his church. The empowerment in Christ. The embodiment of Christ the empowerment in Christ, and finally and quickly, the enablement through Christ. Look at that passage again. Something marvelous happens. Peter stretches out his right hand and lifts up the lame beggar, and the Bible says that immediately, immediately strength began to flow through his feet and ankle bones. I want you to notice something that we often miss in this particular portion of Scripture. Peter stretched out his right hand, and the Bible says immediately strength began to flow through his feet and ankle bones. And the lame beggar stood up. The power was God's power, is it not? It is always God's power at work in and through us. The power was God's, but my dear friends, the hand was Peter's. The power was God's, but the hand was Peter's. God is looking for a Peter this morning. God is looking for a Peter at Calvary Chapel East Side. A Peter who will become the hands and feet of Jesus in this desperate and dying world. A Peter who will stretch out his hand and touch the untouchable, love the unlovable, and proclaim liberty to those who are captive. God is looking for a Peter this morning. How many of you know of Father Damien, the Belgian priest, went to the island of Molokai? You see, Molokai is one of the islands in the kingdom of Hawaii. And all of the lepers were quarantined there for fear that the disease might spread to others. Father Damien lived with them. He walked with them and talked with them and ate with them and slept with them, took care of all of the emotional and spiritual needs. You see, every morning he would have devotions in his home for all the lepers. One particular morning he was taking a bath before the devotions, and he accidentally put his right foot into a bucket of boiling water, and it scaled his feet badly but he did not feel anything. At that moment, he knew what had happened. He himself had contracted leprosy. Every morning when the lepers gathered, he would address them as, my dear lepers. On this particular morning, knowing what had happened to him, with tears in his eyes, he addressed them as, my fellow lepers. He died in the year 1889, and at the request of the Belgian government, his body was flown back to Belgium, but his right hand 
His right hand was severed from his body and sent back to Malachi, where it lays buried today. As a testimony to the fact that here is a man who literally became the hands and feet of Jesus in the desperate and darkened world of lepers, enabling them, enabling them to know the love of Christ in their lives. My dear friends, we are called to enable others to know him. To go out into this world and to proclaim this message of hope that there is a God who longs for an intimate relationship with his sons and his daughters. To tell the people out there, you didn't come about because of some accident, because of some cosmic event. You were deliberately planned, specifically gifted, and lovingly positioned on this earth to be in relationship with your father. With your father. That's the mission God has given us to enable others to know him. It is God's mission, and he wants us to participate in his mission. It is not the mission of an organization. It is not even the mission of the church. It is not the church of God that has a mission in the world, but the God of mission who has a church in the world. And he says, go out there. Enable them to know me. Spread this message of hope. Spread the good news. Spread the good news. David Hasselgrave the great missionary statesman once said, our God is a missionary God. The Bible is a missionary book. The gospel is a missionary message. And the church is primarily a missionary institution. And when the church loses its missionary zeal, please hear me, it has lost one of its primary purposes for being. We have a mission because we have a message. Let's enable others to know him. The enablement that comes through him. Embodiment, empowerment, enablement. Look at the conclusion of this narrative. Look at that passage of scripture again. Acts chapter 3, verses 1 through 10. The Bible says that he stood up, that he walked, that he leapt with joy, and he entered the temple with Peter and John. He entered the temple with Peter and John. Two set out to go to the temple, Peter and John. Three entered the temple. And my question to you this morning is this. Who else are you taking along with you in this journey of life? What difference is your life making? What kind of an influence are you having in society? What is the impact of your life? What is the impact of this church? Who else are you taking along with you in this journey of life? Two set out to go to the temple. Three entered the temple. Who else, my dear friend? Are you taking along with you in this journey of life? Embodiment, empowerment, enablement. Can this become a reality in my life? Yes, it can. Yes, it can. When does it happen? When he becomes the center of your life. When he redefines your life. When he reorients your life. That's when it happens. How does it happen? When you consecrate yourself to him completely and absolutely, without any reservation, without holding back. When you say, Lord, invade my life, every dimension of my life, I give you access to my life. I don't want this autonomous living anymore. Autonoma, self-rule. I want you to rule over me. Rule and reign in my life. Have all of me without any reservation. Let me just tie it all together, embodiment, empowerment, and enablement, by focusing on consecrated living, keeping Christ at the center, with an illustration from India, the land of my birth. 
You see, a little boy and little girl were playing together. He had a lot of marbles, she had a lot of candy. And this young man, a good businessman at his young age, went up to her and said, you give me all your candy, I'll give you all my marbles. Let's do an even exchange. She innocently went back to her room, took every piece of candy that she had, put it into a plastic bag, brought it out to him, and she said, here is all my candy, now give me all your marbles. This smart young man went back to his room. The more he saw his marbles, the more he wanted to keep them. So he kept the best of his marbles tucked away under his pillow, put the rest into a plastic bag, and he brought it out to her, and he lied to her. He said, here are all my marbles, you can have it. That night when they went to bed, she was fast asleep, but he could not sleep. Do you know why? He kept wondering all night, I wonder if she gave me all her candy. My dear friend, please hear me. An unsurrendered autonomy will never be able to shake the specter of doubt. He has given his all to you. The only question is, have you given, have you given your all to him? What are you keeping under the pillow at night? What are you keeping tucked away? God says, yield it all to me. The Christian life is not about negotiating. It's about surrendering. I surrender all, all to thee, without any reservation, without holding back. Lord, have all of me. When that happens, then there will be embodiment. There will be empowerment. There will be enablement for the glory of God. Amen and amen. Would you bow your heads with me in prayer? Lord, we thank you once again for your word. I thank you for this family. Lord, continue to use them for your purposes in the Seattle area, in the state, in this nation, all over the world. Help this to be a church that embodies you, that is empowered by you, that enables others to know you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.